Hello and welcome to another episode of Miradas, a podcast on current affairs and culture in Latin America. My name's John Bartlett and this week my co-host Laurie Blair spoke to Puerto Rican journalist Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez about Ricardo Rossellor's re- recent resignation and the public outcry that led to him stepping down as governor. They also talked about the aftermath of Hurricane Maria in 2017 and the identity of Puerto Ricans in the cultural and political space between Latin America and the US. I then talked to journalist Nina Lacani about her work in Honduras and Central America, ahead of the publication of her forthcoming book on the 2016 murder of indigenous activist and environmental defender Beata Cáceres. Nina spoke about her experience reporting on the case which, which shocked the world, and the threats against her that accompanied her work in Honduras. And then finally, Laurie went to meet author Yara Rodriguez Fowler on the concourse of the British Library in London. Her acclaimed debut novel, Stubborn Archivist, is an intimate and innovative look at Brazil with touches of humour, so please do go out and buy a copy if you can. They also discussed Yara's work with the Latin American community in London. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Okay, so we're joined uh, now by Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez, a journalist from Puerto Rico and currently the Ida B. Wells Fellow at Type Investigations uh, in New York. Um, Andrea, thanks so much for kind of for, for joining us. It's great. It's great to have you uh, with us. Um, at the time of recording, uh, the U.S. Ter- territory of Puerto Rico is on its third governor in less than a week. Um, we've seen uh, mass protests in the streets led by Residente, Ricky Martin, and Bad Bunny. Um, and all of this kind of follows uh, about 900 pages of leaked uh, telegram mas- messages sent by the now ex-governor Ricky Rossello. Andrea, well, what, first of all, like, what were these messages that this the ex-governor sent and, and why have they created such a strong reaction in Puerto Rico? Yeah, so now former governor Ricardo Rossello had this telegram chat with 12 other people um, who were among some of them were his top officials, close associates, and also lobbyists. Mm-hmm. Um, so where these chats were leaked by the Centro de Periodismo Investigativo, the mm-hmm. Rico Center for Investigative Journalism, mm-hmm. what people saw was a lot of like crass remarks, right? Like there were, you know, <laughs> officials calling some political opponents whores, you know, mm-hmm. or putas, is that the way that they used. There were like anti-LGBTQ remarks. It, it was a lot of crass language. Mm. Um, there was a section where they made fun of, you know, the 3,000 people who died after you can marry a hit in September 2017. Mm. Um, so that language really, really angered people. But it also it was the component of you saw kind of like the administration sharing information, like private, like confidential information with lobbyists in that chat which hinted at, you know, potential corruption. When this leak chats came out, just a few days before, some former officials of the Rosario administration had been arrested by the FBI. Mm-hmm. Um, so that created this, it was kind of like a time bomb for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it led to two weeks of massive protests that ended up with Governor Rosario resigning in late July. 
Sure. So, so, we, so we have these kind of, you know, these homophobic, misogynistic, uh, even uh, hinting at corruption messages. Um, but some people have kind of said that, that these leaks were um, uh, la gota que colmo el vaso, or, or the, mm-hmm. you know, the straw that kind of broke the camel's back. Can you explain a, a bit more about that? I mean, why do you think there's this kind of anger and frustration building up for, for so long? Yeah, when yeah, I was born in Puerto Rico and, and grew up there, you always knew about the political class being corrupt. Mm. Um, Ricardo Rosselló's own father uh, was a governor. His name was Pedro Rosselló. And his own ca- cabinet, some of uh, his members were arrested on corruption charges mm. um, in the early 2000s. So you've always known that the political class in Puerto Rico like mismanages funds, like they hire their friends. And it's this pattern that we see, it's pretty common in other, you know, places of Latin America as well. Um, so you have that part, and then you have Puerto Rico has been in crisis for the last 15 years. Um, their recession there started in 2006. Um, then after that, the financial crash in the U.S. trickled down to Puerto Rico and impacted that too. Mm. Um, in 2015, you had former Governor Alejandro Garcia Padilla saying that the government had this massive public debt that was unpayable. It's about $72 billion in debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2017, Hurricane Maria hit, and it's the most devastating storm that the island has ever seen. 3,000 people died. People were without power, without electricity for you know months. It was like a time of like a lot of chaos. And, and the island has been in crisis. So what you're seeing is that people are tired. And you know, Governor Rosselló represented a lot of the, the things that people were angry about, right? The way that he managed the aftermath of the hurricane, people were not pleased with that. Um, The Obama administration and the Republican-controlled Congress in 2016 appointed this fiscal oversight board made up by seven elected officials, whose basically their role is to pay back the debt, pay back creditors. Mm -hmm. So that means there's a lot of austerity measures, right, when it comes to pensions, when it comes to you know, education to the University of Puerto Rico. So there was a lot of anger among Puerto Ricans to see, hey, we have had like terrible time for the last second and a half. And then we have someone who's so insanely privileged, just making fun of people and, you know, just speaking this way and just, you know, cuddling lobbyists. It, it was this you know, like what that going on in Basel is like quite literally just the lost straw for a lot of people. Um, sure. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, meant, you mentioned there the sort of, you know, the fact that Puerto Rico has been in re- recession for 13 years. And I think I read some stats saying that, you know, the, the island, the, the territory has lost about 15% of its population due to mm-hmm. migration in the past sort of 10 years, which I think is the highest rate of any any country in the world that isn't at, at war. So it seems like there's been, there's been huge you know, changes and, and tensions there building up for, for a long time. Um, I, I, I kind of wondered, you know, uh, you know, we now have a new governor as of two days ago at time of recording um, in the shape of former Justice Minister Wanda Vasquez. I wonder if you think protests will will kind of simmer down now now she's installed is she a popular figure and do you see um measures being taken which might kind of calm the situation yeah there was a lot of tension um that you mentioned earlier that she's the third governor in one week <laughs> <laughs> um, before her 
um, it was this former uh, top official. Uh, his name was Pedro Pierluisi, who was kind of appointed governor, but then earlier this week, the Puerto Rico Supreme Supreme Court ruled that that was unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. um, the law that was used to justify his appointment, um, they ruled it was unconstitutional. So now Juan Vazquez is the new governor. I'm not sure if protests are gonna die down. Uh, she's certainly trying to say that she's not a political like person, right? Like she used to be a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. She was the, the lead of the Justice Department. Um, she has never been like in elected office mm. so she's tried to play that game of why well we underwent this really like turbulent time and now we want to be united and whatnot mm -hmm. that being said um, there's a lot of concerns about ethical issues when it comes to how she handled or decided not to handle certain investigations because it concerned the pro-state party and the Rosario administration. Um, so mm. I, I, back, back in mid-July when the protests started and it became clear that she might become the new governor because of the line of secession, the secretary is supposed to be secretary of state and then secretary of justice. Mm -hmm. So the secretary of state was in the league chat, so he resigned. Um, yeah. So when it became clear that she could be the new governor, there were protests, there was like, you know, people say, one that renuncia, one that resign. Mm. So I am not sure what people are going to make of it. She yeah. says that she's not going to resign, um, even with pressure from the pro-statehood leadership in the Puerto Rican legislature. She says that she's not going to step down, that she's going to finish the term until 2020 when Puerto Rico has a new election. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the example of elsewhere in the in in uh, the Americas uh, should maybe make us worry about uh, prosecutors and, and uh, lawyers and justice ministers who claim to be apolitical, but perhaps uh, aren't in aren't in reality. Mm -hmm. Thinking about Brazil in this context. Um, I mean, as a journalist, you, you've been, you know, very active uh, in highlighting uh, the stories of many of those who, who died during Hurricane Maria in 2017 and in its aftermath um, and I recommend our listeners go and you know go and check out your your very powerful um, you know thread uh, which you've, you have on Twitter mentioning some of those people uh, we're kind of we're now nearly two years on from the hurricane um, do you you know I wonder to what extent you think the damage has been repaired and, and whether the authorities on, on the US mainland have kind of done enough to actually help the situation yeah, um, the last time I was in Puerto Rico was earlier this summer. And, you know, life went on. Mm. <laughs> Puerto Rico is open for business. That's what we'll tell you, right? Yeah. Um, but there are still certain areas of the island, especially those that are impoverished, that are rural areas, that still are, are there's still damage, right? You have roofs with blue tarps. You know, there's no roof, so there's a blue tarp on top of it. And that has been the case for the last nearly two years. So there's a lot of work to, to be done. Um, for context for your listeners, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. It's mm. not a state, mm. um, which means that the amount of funding that they can get from the federal government is limited um, because of that weird political relationship. Uh, I don't think the Trump administration and, you know, like the Republican leadership in the Senate are, you know, they, they have doubts about giving more aid to Puerto Rico in the aftermath of what happened with the Rosario administration um, and all these corruption charges, because this is something that President Donald Trump has been, you know, 
saying for a long time, like they are corrupt, so we're not gonna give them money. Um, and I think that there's been tensions there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Puerto Ricans have a non-voting member of Congress, um, uh, Representative Jennifer Gonzalez, mm-hmm. and she's been trying to lobby uh, so that aid can be given to Puerto Rico, not only disaster aid, but other like forms of welfare as well, such as Medicaid, which is like a, it's related to healthcare, sure. um, and, and other types of funds. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, that, 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 that kind of leads me on to my, onto my next question, really. I mean, I think uh, people, especially people from outside of the U.S., maybe even people who are in the U.S., perhaps don't understand that very um, unusual relationship between Puerto Rico and the U.S. mainland. You know, you, ha- you don't have full representation in, in Congress. And, and I, I was recently reading um, a book by uh, the historian Daniel Imovar called How to Hide an Empire. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've come across that, and and some of the details he was talking about, the you know the, the sort of U.S. colonization of Puerto Rico were you know shocking. We're talking about medical experiments put on 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 yeah. civilian population, you know, military oppression, uh, and and equally a very vibrant and very strong uh, anti-colonial movement. You know, we, we have Puerto Rican nationalists, you know, attempting to assassinate U.S. presidents in the in the sort of 50s, yeah. 60s. Um, it, it you know it's a it's a kind of really dramatic uh, and, and shocking story. I wonder if you think, and it's one, one that I think it's been covered up quite a lot, perhaps in in, in the U.S. And do, do you think people, you know, in, in in the in the U.S. mainland are kind of aware of of, of what's going on in Puerto Rico and, and their relationship to it? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> um, you know, Puerto Rico is the oldest colony in the world. It was colonized by Spain in 1492. And then it was invaded by the U.S. in 1898 mm-hmm. um, before it became a property of the U.S. after the Spanish-American War. Um, so, yeah, I don't think people are very aware. There's a lot of people in the, in the mainland. I want to say the New York Times did a story shortly after Hurricane Maria, and I think they found like 50-something percent of Americans did not know that Puerto Ricans were U.S. citizens. Wow. Um, So, yeah, I don't think there's a lot of knowledge about the island. Just for context, you know, Puerto Ricans became U.S. citizens in 1917. And then in 1952, it's when it became like a so-called commonwealth, Mm -hmm. Estado Libre Asociado, Mm -hmm. which basically says it's kind of like a protectorate. Um, That being said, the federal policy a lot of times is still like pretty colonial. Um, there's this bunch of cases that the Supreme Court decide, decided at the turn of the 20th century called the Insular Cases, which basically say that Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories at that time, like the Philippines was part of that group, but also current U.S. territories, such as Guam, American Samoa, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and the Northern Mariana Islands. Mm. It says that these territories belong to but are not part of the U.S., that has been kind of like the relationship mm. um, between the mainland and the island, which means that when you grow up there, like I did, you know, you learn English and you sing the national anthem and you are taught uh, American history in schools. But then at the same time, when you move here, like I did, a lot of times, you know, people are not aware that you're a citizen. People do not understand that if you are a an American citizen, you don't need a passport <laughs> to yeah. go to Puerto Rico, right? So there's definitely a disconnect um, and a very unequal relationship 
that has been going on for 121 years. Sure. Um, and a lot of the things are happening in the islands, such like the debt crisis, you know, you mentioned the experimentation on women when it came to like, you know, birth control. We only have birth control today because there were experiments done on Puerto Rican women at those like mid 20th century. Yeah. Um, there are other things like the U.S. Navy used to do military exercises in this small island town called Vieques. Um, and now they were there for like 60 something years. They've been gone for nearly two decades, but the island still has like crazy rates of cancer due to those like military um, exercises. You would not see that in the state. You would not see that in Texas. You mm. would not see that in Wyoming. You would not see that in, I don't know, like New York. Um, so it's a very unequal relationship. And even though there's been referendums done in the island to try to decide what political status the Puerto Ricans want, um, those referendums have been non-binding, which means that Congress can't ignore them, and that's exactly what they've done. Well, I mean, I think that, I think that, a lot, that will be news to a lot of people uh, outside of the U.S., but also in, in you know in the in the country as well. And, and you know, I should say the the U.K. is also uh, vulnerable to to that problem of not knowing its own history and its relationship with former and the current uh, colonies uh, or overseas mm-hmm. territories. Um, and just finally, you know, very very briefly, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier on that we've seen these. Uh, you know, these amazing artists like, you know, Residente or, or you know, uh, Bad Bunny, maybe less so, um, uh, you know, as the kind of face of these protests. And, I, you know, from when I, I, I mainly report in, in South America, like Paraguay, Bolivia in particular, and even there, these artists are huge, you know, like we're hearing Puerto Rican music, reggaeton, like all around the Americas and even all around the world. Mm-hmm. I kind of just wonder, like, uh, you know, that's a really hard question to think about, but what you think Puerto Rico's relationship is like with the rest of Latin America? You know, do you think um, Boricua, do you think people from Puerto Rico think of themselves as kind of as, as Latino, as, as Latin American, or, or is there kind of a, a remove? I just kind of wonder what you, what your, your feeling about that kind of relationship is between, between Latin America and Puerto Rico. Oh, we for sure um, think of ourselves as part of Latin America. That's the strange thing about Puerto Rico, even though it's part of, like, belongs to the U.S., to mm. use the language of the insular cases, it has its own national identity. Um, you speak Spanish, you have your history, your traditions that are very much a product of, you know, that weird you know, colonization, but also people finding their own, like, creating their own traditions, their own culture. Um, so I do think that Puerto Rico does feel like it's part of Latin America, which is strange because more often than not, what I mean, people who are not from the, the Caribbean or not from the U.S., they're kind of like, oh, you guys in Puerto Rico, you guys are like gringos too. And I'm like, mm, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, yeah. I do think that obviously because it is, you know, a U.S. colony, in many ways, there has not been like, you know, relationships with other governments or, you know, things like trade are just unthinkable because, you know, that it, it would be directly with the U.S. instead mm. of the island. But when it comes to culture and the way that people feel, they definitely feel very much part of Latin America. Yeah, definitely. That, that's something that I think you, you, you know, you, you notice um, around the region. Um Andrea, that, that's all we've got time for, but but thanks so much for joining us and um, and best of luck with your future reporting. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. 
So here with me today is freelance reporter Nina Lacani, who writes on Mexico and Central America for The Guardian. Her book about the life and death of Berta Cáceres, an environmental justice campaigner in Honduras, is due to be published at the start of next year. So Nina, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome. Uh, The first time you met Berta Cáceres, she told you that the, the army has an assassination list and her name was at the top of it. Uh, She said, I want to live, but in this country there is total impunity. When they want to kill me, they will do it. Uh, She was murdered at her home, of course, by armed intruders on the evening of the 2nd of March 2016, after years of threats against her. And at the time, she'd been protesting against four dams that were due to be built in Honduras. So Nina, how do you reflect on that first meeting, and kind of what has the process been like writing about Berta's story? Um, I met Bertha in December, no, November 2013, so it's just when, um, just around the elections were taking place, and, and at that time she was on the run, she had trumped up criminal charges um, that had been brought about um, by the dam company DESA, um, the uh, dam company behind the Aguazalca Dam, which is a dam that had been, um, the concession had been imposed on a river called the Guadalcalque River, which is um, um, sacred to the Lenca people. Bertha, um is an indigenous leader, that's how she would identify herself. She wouldn't identify herself as an environmentalist. If, you, if you're an indigenous defender, you are defending land and water, that those are the rights that predominantly people are um, um, fighting for. Um, so, um, and she was on the run for these trumped up charges, um, staying in different places every day, you know. Um, and I met her at her family home um, in La Esperanza, which is in Western Honduras. And, um, you know, she's, she's serious really engaging you know like very very clear you know like what Bertha had an ability to do um, is understand small or local issues in a global sense you know she was a she was a globalist she understood she could talk about um, uh, uh, a resistance movement in Lithuania or in Rwanda you know and, and or in Honduras and I understand you know I understand that local issues were the result of global decisions and economic um, economic models yeah. you know the economic model and um, and she was just really clear you know that she wanted to live but she knew that time you know that when um, that her, her name was on this um, military hit list mm-hmm. Which had been circulating after the 2009 coup, after which Honduras became the most dangerous country in the world outside a war zone, the most dangerous country in the world to defend land and um, envi- the environment, and uh, um, that no, no matter what precautions she took and how mm-hmm. careful she was, she made it very clear to me that when they want to, when they make the decision to kill me, they will do it. There will be nothing I can do about it. Mm-hmm. And so she was taking precautions. Um, her kids were at that time all studying outside of um, Honduras. Um, but she was just really clear that she was not going to stop defending indigenous rights, her community's um, rights. Um, but that um, it came with a huge, you know, many sacrifices, and it, there was a constant threat against her life. And this wasn't the first time she had been threatened. You know, she had mm-hmm. been involved in. Um, in um in in the defense of indigenous rights and human rights you know from the early 90s from when she was a very young woman you know and every time they were resisting uh the 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 imposition of a a logging project or a dam or a mine there were threats yeah. you know but she felt very clear that this time was different that the people behind the dam the Aguasaco dam were politically powerful were economically powerful and she felt well, she knew it was different, you know, and, that's, and she was really clear about that. Yeah. But you, you were also the only foreign journalist present at her at the trial in, in 2018. 
Um, do you see any kind of significant progress in terms of impunity in Honduras? Uh, so it's a kind of perennial issue in, in Central America. Well, Honduras is a very particular issue. I think it's a real um, mistake to um, discuss Central America as, a, as an entity yeah. because each country is completely different. Mm-hmm. Honduras, there was a um, military-backed coup in Honduras 10 years ago in June 2009 when a democratically elected um, president was whisked out of the country and taken to Costa Rica. A plot, a, 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 mo- a coup that was planned by a, a network of religious military, economic and political elites. Mm -hmm. And since then, Honduras has been an absolute hellhole, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, it has been, you know, tens of thousands of people have been murdered. Um, It is the most dangerous country in the world to be a land and environment defender, the most dangerous country in the world to be, to practice law. Tens of thousands of people have fled because of extreme poverty, corruption, impunity, you know, and so, no, it's gone, it's gone backwards constantly since 2009 that trial that happened in 2018 seven people were convicted no one has been convicted of plotting her murder seven people were convicted of um, committing her murder the intellectual authors the conspirators no one has been held to account for that Um, and of those seven people there were a group of hitmen a group of hired sicarios a part of that and there was an ex um security guard, ex-security chief for the dam company, the environment and social um, manager, um, um, and uh, special forces major, and actually special forces major, so just even in that trial, two people with military links were um, prosecuted, but they were, they've been prosecuted of carrying out the murder, not of, not of conspiring, you know, the, okay. the conspirators have not been convicted, you okay. know, and one, the president of the company, Dessa, also with a military background, he was a military intelligence officer trained in the US. Um, he has been charged with plotting her murder and he's tra- he was charged separately two years after everyone else. Um, he's also facing n- several corruption charges for the dam, you know, the concession that was illegally obtained or legally sanctioned. Um, but uh, um, the, the, pe- the, the people who paid for the murder, the pe- you know, the executives of the company, nobody has faced trial and nobody has been charged. Mm-hmm. And you yourself were the subject of various threats and, and harassment during your kind of your trajectory reporting on the case. Um, do you feel that kind of the press is free to report on these cases at all in Honduras? And kind of is it safe to do so? Um, Honduras is one of the most dangerous places to be a journalist, um, and has become infinitely more dangerous since the coup. It's another group of people who have been specifically targeted since the coup. It's one of the most dangerous places to um, to be a journalist. Like I say. Um, I, the threats against me started um, back in two. I, you know, I knew Bertha, and when she got murdered in two thousand sixteen, I went to Honduras and started investigating her death. And um, in June two thousand sixteen, I published a story about her name being on the military hit list and an army deserter of a, an elite unit which had received U.S. training and U.S. aid had um, had been given a list of social and political opponents. Um, to target and her name was on that list and after she was murdered this young soldier um, fled the country and I um, became a source Mm. you know and so now whereas in 2013 she told me and she had seen a list had been passed a list that had a name on what we had for the very first time was an insider who had whose unit had been given the list with her name on Mm. when I published that story I was not in Honduras I was um, I think I was in London actually, but um, 
that's when the the campaign against me started. The the defence minister, the chief of um, staff, held various press conferences. Um, um, you know, didn't, did, trying to discredit my work, trying to discredit the Guardian, who I published a story with. Press releases were released with my name and my picture on. Um, all of these. Uh, um, you know, this sort of online smear campaign started. There was a false um, conference that was advertised about um, around media terrorism, and I was included in that. And since then, I have taken, you know, I've had to take a lot of precautions. I've never gone back into Honduras um, by air. I travel in very circuitous routes overland, mm. um, and you know, and I've and I've kept publishing, right? And I've been the only one that's publishing on her, but not just on her. And all parts, you know, Honduras has. To me, in all I work with across Central America, Mexico, it's the most difficult and scariest place to work. It's like a no man's land in parts of. Um, there are paramilitary groups. There are death squads. There are um, narcos. There are gangs, um, and the military is sort of above and above beyond all of that. You know, um, so I'd had taken a lot of precautions, and then when the trial on the first day of the trial, when it was due to start, it was actually suspended on that first day. And when I left court to come back to write a story about the fact it'd been suspended, I'd written several stories. What I've done since two thousand and sixteen is not publish stories while being in Honduras as a as a precaution, yeah. but in this occasion I had to because I was there and the trial was starting, and a press release had been released um, had been circulated from a false campesina peasant farmer group in the Aguan region of the. Um, in the Guan region of Honduras, which is in the north, in the north coast, which is, I mean, it's absolute, you know, it's, it, it, we've no idea how many people get murdered there. Like I say, this is, you know, really terrifying mix of um, actors, you know, like, um, um, you know, same hitman work for the palm, that's where the African palm plantation owners, yeah. as they do for narcos, as they do for the military, you know, and so, and so this, this press release was um, um, circulated in which, was declared me persona non grata, um, claiming I had been in the region, in the north, um, inciting violence among paramilitary groups, and that I was linked to a, um, um, a hitman who had been recently um, arrested in Mexico, who we know has killed many people. Um, and so they didn't mention Bertha's trial, you know, but it was, we, and I believe very strongly, first of all, that, that the information that they had in that was based on military intelligence, and second, you know, the the the, the, the ob objectives of that were two things: to scare me enough to stop, um, to so that I would leave and stop reporting on the trial, and also to create the conditions in which I would either be expelled because what they were saying was that I was not a journalist. That's what this press release was claiming that I was not a journalist. I was using that as a, as a, you know, as a as a as a sort of disguise you know to be to do this insurgency organized crime sort yeah. of you know um work um and so to create the condition that i could be expelled from the country or if something was to happen to me in the country if i was to have an accident or i was to be killed in some sort of um incident mm. the claim could be made that well look she, we said she was look there's claims that she was linked to organized crime it would sort of be a cover-up um so that was released while i was in the country and then a second one was a press release was um um, circulated in which they were now claiming that I was actually linked to terrorism that I was you know um, a ter um, um, again from this same false group and that was also directed at a woman called Annie Bird who is a um, community organiser, American community organiser human rights worker who has worked in Honduras for years calling us terrorists you know and and, um, and this is what the Honduran military intelligence have 
done and do for years. They use, they make false claims against community leaders, against journalists, using, um, um, accu accusing them of being terrorists. Previously it was communists, now terrorists, mm -hmm. in order to get the attention of the CIA, to get the attention of the far-right Republican um, 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 senators and congressmen, in order to, to make sure that military aid keeps flowing, saying, look, we're part of the fight against terrorism, like mm -hmm. they did in the 80s with communism, right? And so, um, and yes, that all happened while I was in Honduras. I then left because the trial was suspended, but it was re, it re, you know, restarted two weeks later, so I had to go back, again, in this very long route overland. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it was anxiety provoking, you know, like it sort of, um, the security advice for me was to not be in the street at any time, you know what I mean, to get, um, and not go out, just come court to where I was staying, but um, it was six weeks of trial we were there, it was, you know, difficult, and um, um, the local press, by the vast majority of the local press who did cover in some aspect of trial were pro the dam company, anti the family, anti Bertha, like I would walk into a courtroom, and other reporters would put a coat next to them so I couldn't sit there, you know, like it was really just um, hostile the whole time. The defence lawyers were um, um, reading, I was sort of on Twitter um, documenting each day, you know, every, or every few yeah. days what was going on, partly just to have it for public record and partly just to clarify in my own head what was going on in the trial. The defence lawyers were collecting those, translating them into Spanish, sharing them amongst a big group of people and sort of approached me about them sort of um the minute the, the public ministry of the attorney general's office were also really hostile towards me you know so it was just like a very difficult environment do you know what i mean but like you know i was i had to stay or i wanted to stay and was, you know you have that sort of i'm not going to be bullied out of doing my job yeah. do you know what i mean and like and i think actually the international pressure following bertha's case i mean when she was murdered she was the most well-known defender in Latin America by easily she had won the Goldman Prize um, yeah. for environmental um, activism in 2015 she had just had an audience with the Pope she recently had an audience with the Pope she was and they killed her anyway you know yeah. if they could kill Bertha they could kill anyone and yeah. so but there was such a huge international um, reaction um, from certain members of Congress, um, certain members of, um, of the Senate, the EU, and I was reporting it constantly, and I think if that hadn't happened, there would never have been a trial. There would never have been any trial, do you know? So I think the international pressure was massive, and they hated the fact that I was still there and I was still reporting, you know, like, um, before, after, during, and like, um, and I think it was, yeah, it was intimidation. It may, whereas Bertha's trial was never mentioned in these press releases, the people behind all of the mega projects, all the economic powers are have total protection from the military and the um, Honduras. That's who the military work for, you know. That's who the politicians work for, you know. So it is all, and it's the same people, you know. And so, and I think the fact that her murder then um, stopped construction of this dam was has is seen as a very bad example, and in, in the sense that. Um, and the fact that people were arrested and some military people and some of the company officials have been arrested and charged, that, hang on, that, you know, this is a country where there's been 100% impunity for anyone with money forever, you know, and suddenly, because of international pressure, that was challenging that, you know, and so I think it's seen very much as a bad example for the people who run the country, you know, um, and so I think that's what was behind it. Yeah. 
And how much support are you getting as a freelancer throughout this time? Um, I mean, I think I, I think the support I got from um, networks of, you know, defenders, you know, like you know, like me, like the Mesoamerican Women's Network defenders were Im- immediately put out an alert and press releases and circulated them everywhere. The NUJ, the you know, the National Union of Journalists. I asked them to do the same. The Guardian um, was supportive with logistics and you know, um, and security measures. Do you know what I mean that's and the Committee to Protect Journalists again putting out information. And I think what we what I decided to do was not leave straight, but to stay, work out where the threats were coming from, and create such a massive noise that it would become politically too expensive for something to happen to me. I asked the UK ambassador to communicate with the foreign office you know the, his, his counterparts in the foreign office to 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 emphasize that they the UK, you know the UK government considered this not just an attack on me but an attack on the freedom of the press yeah. that I was a bona fide journalist that I should whatever needed to be done to make sure that I could continue to report on what was the most emblematic trial in the history of Honduras mm-hmm. should be done Do you know so we tried to then US embassy was communicated the same information you know you know some have were played uh, also tried to discredit the story that I did about the hit list because these elite units receive US aid and they you know they tried to discredit my work then and the Guardian then so just you know we tried to create a massive diplomatic noise and just lots of um, you know um, lots of press releases and sharing on sort of social networks to just make it sort of really expensive you know really sort of politically expensive for something to happen to me and and just I think the support was you know it's like a very lonely difficult period but I think I was getting messages from people all over the world yeah. in solidarity and stuff and it just really kept my spirits up thinking like you know this is something that I have to keep doing you know it was really that was you know it was great it was really really supportive yeah I remember following it closely at the time kind of as you were reporting on the on the trial but um if we talk a little bit about Berta as, as well, kind of her, as you, as you rightly say, she's more of an indigenous leader than, a, than an environmental activist. Um, you know, if we talk about indigenous rights in Honduras, we talk all day about kind of, you know, the voices that people have, but what did she do for kind of Honduran women in particular? Did she give them a significant voice or was she always kind of shouting kind of, you know, against these kind of corporate interests? No, I think, um, you know, um, you know, Berta and her former husband, Salvador Zuniga, um founded COPIN, you know, the, the um, Lenko popular organisation back in 1993, and have been involved in all sort of things. What I think Bertha will be remembered most for is the the re, the, um, the recuperation of the Lenko identity. The Lenko people, um, at the time of the Spanish um, conquest, were the biggest um, indigenous group in um in Honduras, but you know their identity, their language, many parts of um, y- you know um, who they were have been eroded completely. You know, the, you know the language doesn't get spoken at all now. And what she did and Copin did in 1994, 1994, 1995, mm-hmm. they organised pilgrim marches, in which the seven indigenous groups of Honduras marched from every corner of Honduras from where they were to Tegucigalpa to really say. Indigenous people are not a thing of the past in Honduras. Indigenous people were never considered or recognised as existing. They were considered part of, you know, 
history, you know, about folklore. And, and they, I mean, and thousands and thousands and thousands walked to the capital to take the Sigalpa. And that led to, um, you know, that then generated um, new laws. It led to, in, 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 you know, indig indigenous communities being recognised in the constitution, the, the signing of the ILO 169, you know, the. Um, the International Labour Organization 169 Treaty, which recognizes the land rights of indigenous communities and native communities, you know, um, which is what Bertha has then used and other indigenous communities have used in Honduras to oppose, legally oppose the, um, the land grabs, you know, for mega projects, whether it be dams, mines, tourism um, complexes, logging, whatever, you know, this, this is this international, because one, you know, Honduras ratified it, I think, in 1995. Um, that is the law, right? And so when they sanction a dam on a river without any consultation, that is breaking the law both internationally and nationally, you know? And so um, so she wasn't, a sh you know, she, she was fantastic, you know, she was, she's an organiser, she, she was an amazing narrator when she spoke, people listened, and something that Berta had that very few people have is an ability to speak to and... Um, um, relate to and connect to people from from president of the World Bank to illiterate campesinos in the community. She just very few people have that. You know, she connected urban communities to rural communities. She could be sitting in a politician's office one day, um, and you know, in a community, um, a far you know, a far flung community in I don't know in in Canada the next, and she would have the same impact. You know, like she's um, a brilliant narrator. Um, and just spoke in a great negotiator. She had a bottom line that would never be crossed. She was uncorruptible, but she was a great negotiator, you know, like she knew who to talk to when, you know, and so, um, yeah, she was, um, um, yeah, she, she was there uh, opposing free trade treaties. She was in Quebec in 2000. She was, you know, she was, a, um, um, she was and she loved that. That mm -hmm. gave her energy, but she, you know, she, um, she was also, um, Fighting cases at the Inter-American Court for Human Rights, she was present. You know, she was. Um, you know, she she was for a lot of things. She, you know, she was there campaigning for um, equal or access to education and health. Um, you know, Lenga community, like most indigenous communities in Honduras, had been completely abandoned by the state yeah. for decades and decades. Have the worst rates of education, worst rates of access to health, etc. She was for things, and the, but the thing is, especially um, especially after the coup. It was just such an onslaught of violence and oppression that it was going from crisis to crisis. They were just trying to survive as a as a people, you know. And so, by she wasn't, I think, um, activists, um, especially indigenous activists, often get criticised for being opposed to everything. That isn't the case. But when you're, you know, if you threaten a river, you're threatening the very existence of that community um, because a river is what um, gives the community life. It's how they. What their the water the animals drink it's where they get their food it's where they get the medicine so it's sort of you know there was fighting for the right to exist do you know what I mean and I think the neoliberal economic model she never would she couldn't she wouldn't accept it it's like there is enough there are enough resources for everyone but we have a, we are dominated by a, an economic model which in for a few people to do have everything everyone else has to be repressed and have nothing and that's what she was absolutely um, always fighting against and she understood the battle for Agu against Aguazarca and every battle she fought 
in those terms, in global economic terms. And finally, if we talk about her legacy, I mean, not only the legacy of, of, of her death, but of her life as well, as you mentioned, that she was this incredible kind of, you know, kind of cohering kind of force between her, between all the people she, she spoke to and she could negotiate with kind of all levels of society. Um, how will she be remembered and what's the most important kind of part of you know, her, her legacy as a whole? I think the reivindication, the really sort of um, the, the recognition of the, the existence of a Lenka could be that, that recuperation of a Lenka identity. I think if I had to pick think one mm-hmm. thing, that's what she would be remembered for. You know, I think that has had an immense impact, not just on the Lenka people, but in Honduras and, um, you know, regionally. I think she was a key force in connecting um, resistance movements and communities and organisations across Mesoamerica, you know, and I think that international role that she played um, and the ability to, you know, go to any country and understand that community's struggle in the sense of connected to what was happening in Honduras in her corner of the world, um, but also just globally, you know, I think is hugely important. And also as a, you know, a strong woman who, who fought against uh, the economic model, the neoliberal economic model, but and 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 and, and, and patriarchy. You know, she understood that all of these things um, impact on and are experienced by women um, in very different ways. You know, and and she, you know, Bertha was someone that didn't just talk the talk; she walked the walk. You know, so she called out machismo. Um, Everywhere in every setting, she never, you know, she never let it go. She mm. never let it go. Do you know what I mean? And she, you know, she organised her own her own um, um, group and um, everything she did in, you know, to challenge patriarchy, to challenge racism, mm-hmm. to challenge. She also, you know, she was an absolute pioneer um, in um, um, LGBT um, rights. I mean, like, um, the coping. It's possibly still the only organisation that has one of its main themes, um, gender identity and LGBT rights. It was a key part of what she believed in. That's sort of in you know in this in Latin America, especially in indigenous organisations. You know, um, machismo and homophobia, sexism. These are key. They're they're there. They're there every day, and she challenged them in every community that she went to and in every level. You know, and I think these are you know she will of course be remembered for her battle. By the Goldman Prize and her, ba- you know, which and her battle to stop the Aguasaca Dam, which ev- and which was why she was killed. But I think her legacy is just, you know, is so much more than that. I think she was a re- true pioneer, a true internationalist, a true, um, you know, um, a true a true voice for for women, for um, for indigenous people, for for Hondu, and you know, and I think, um, yeah, um, that. Her murder has had a massive consequence on the country. You know, I think it really weakened the social movement hugely, and I think it's still the country's still recovering from that. We've had fraudulent elections since then, and you really missed her ability and her to unite communities or the whole country. You know, because she had that. Many people, most people don't. Um, but I think, yeah, I think she did what she did and what she achieved. For, is what is a huge part of the legacy, not just what she fought against. It's an incredible legacy for a fairly incredible woman. So, Nina, thank you so much for talking to us. It's very kind. You're welcome. Okay, so um, I'm here outside the British Library uh, in London on a rainy uh, June day with Yara Rodriguez Fowler. 
uh, whose um, debut novel, uh, Stubborn Archivist, has just come out in the UK this yeah. February, uh, and I believe is out in the US this July. Yes, right? yeah, in about a month, almost exactly a month, yeah. Fantastic. Um, it, it's an incredible book, um, and it's picked up praise from all kinds of different people. Mm. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'll talk about it in a very clumsy way. Mm. It's a sort of exploration of, of sort of uh, trauma of identity, what it means to be uh, sort of have uh, roots in Brazil but a life in in the UK, um, and it just really feels like a like a sort of um, a very lyrical description of something we perhaps we haven't seen that much before in in, in literature in in the UK. Um, I'd love to ask you some questions about it, Yara. But first of all, how has the past couple of months been since the launch of the book? Like how how have how's how's it been bringing that that book out into the world? Um, yeah, first of all, like thank you for having me. Um, how's it been? Oh yeah, it's been really great. I feel very uh, grateful. Like um, lots of people have liked it and praised it and connected with it and gone out and bought it and messaged me. Um, people in Brazil, I was on Global, they have like a literature program. The, the journalist was like, what? <laughs> it's a program about literary London and then they, they were like, that's a Brazilian woman. So oh, wow. anyway, um, so yeah, like Brazilians in Brazil, like all kinds of people in the UK. Um, it's been quite overwhelming, but in a in a good way. Uh, mm. So, like people DMing me, <laughs> saying like, "Thank you," or "I bought this for my whole family," or um, like, "I think we went to school together," and like, "I'm hearing waterstones of your book." So it's really weird. Wow. Um, but, quite but yeah, it's great, and um, uh, it's because it's not a traditional book. It's quite unconventional. So I'm. That's why I think it's it's not necessarily what I would have expected. Absolutely, but yeah, not only in terms of the, the kind of the content, and I should say, as well as being kind of very moving and lyrical, it's also very funny. There's also a lot of humour, I think, in those kind of family yeah. relationships and yeah. the sections dealing with IBS and things like that, yeah. which I think, you know, are really funny. But also, but also the, the, the structure, as you say, is, is unconventional. Yeah. You know, you, you play with different voices, um, flashbacks, f- flash forwards, yeah. perspectives. Um, some pages just have, you know, a few lines or, or, yeah. or a few words um, across you know, different languages. Um, uh, do, you know, do you feel that's connected with, with, with people? Do you think people are sort of, you know, I, I, you know got it in different ways and, and approached it from, wanted to do it in different ways? Um, yeah, definitely. I think there are like several different reasons for that and like ways that people connect with it. Mm. Um, something people say to me is, oh, I sat down and read it in one go or two goes or like, I mean, obviously no one would ever say like, oh, I got through a bit and then put it down because it was boring but like um it is remarkable to me like how quickly people read it so it's really easy to read and I think um there's an element to which like big heavy blocks of text are actually kind of a bit arduous for us Mm. um so I think it's the fact it's experimental um doesn't in any way make it hard to read it makes it easier to read that's something I was really keen on so it's not experimental in the sense of like trolling your reader um and I, I don't know, I think maybe that's to do with like poetry is becoming like much more popular, sales of poetry have surged, so maybe it's like tapping into that way of thinking. Um, and maybe also I think there's something about it which is quite influenced by like the way we talk to each other online. Yeah. Kind yeah. of like um, less punctuated. Um, there's a lot of the dialogue in the text isn't marked by speech marks. Sometimes you don't know if it's thoughts or dialogue or mm-hmm. it could be like a 
instant message. So I think like that blurring of what is speech is actually quite true to how we live now. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and the other thing is like, you know, if you leave the UK, if you look at other literary traditions, like people aren't writing, the realist novel is such a British thing, it's quite yeah. an American thing as well. And like using more of the form of like contours or something like that, like more like oral, more fragmented, more broken up, like that is a way that we do storytelling. Absolutely, yeah. the idea of this grand novel in kind of, you know, Dickens-like or Thomas Hardy-esque kind of like yeah. blocks of text is, is yeah, is actually a, only a very small part of that global yeah, yeah. literary tradition. Yeah, um, uh, and that kind of leads me on to my next question, like, you know, I'm curious to know a bit more about who your you know, influences are. Like, I, you know, I know you, you, you sort of, yeah, you seem to name check Zadie Smith at one point in the text, yeah. is like another example of that sort of, uh, if, this is the, if this is the word diasporic uh, yeah. idea of writing, I know you've, you've talked about uh, Gina Diaz as well as, as, as someone who you've been reading. You know, who, who, who do you sort of feel yourself in, in dialogue with and who do you feel yourself kind of responding to? Yeah, I mean, I think perhaps unsurprisingly, like, my influences come from three main, like, areas of tradition. So um, there are the, like, Zaydis and Salman Rushdies and Hanif Qureshi. Um, the, like, a generation ago, maybe, but the kind of... Uh, the, the, the second gen like immigrant British novel was obviously like a big thing that I grew up with um, but certainly for me there was something particularly having then done an English degree and studied like Victorian literature all these like big novels that you talk about um, I think it's something for me where it didn't sit right like writing a big realist novel that had come out of this tradition which was actually a lot about empire a lot about conquest a lot about like dominating a story like creating an imagined geography that is a lot for me like the roots of the British novel and not just in terms of colonialism you know like we're going to go to this place we're going to tell the story of this place we're going to explain to you like but even gender like if you think about like Pamela like Samuel Richardson's these sort of grand rape narratives um so yeah for me it just didn't sit sit I didn't want to use that form yeah. and particularly I didn't want to use it to write about trauma yeah um, I wanted to use the form to show how trauma disrupts our memory, disrupts our sen un understanding of what happened, to have a real like self-conscious textuality um, that didn't just go, I'm an authoritative voice saying this is what definitely happened. And so I was very influenced by the way that like black American, like North American writers do trauma. So like Alice Walker, Toni Morrison, where it's very disruptive and in the form um, and then I was also similarly influenced just by like Brazilian like much more like oral literature so like Caetano Villos or Elise Regina so um, and again the way it talks it does talks about violence is really different to realism so it's because of censorship so you can't just say like this is a dictatorship it's oppressive or something you have to find a way of using silence or communicating something obliquely um as well as obviously it has this like poetic orality to it yeah so that yeah. was also something that influenced me a lot um when i was putting text together absolutely yeah i think you that, that sense of there are some things you you can only approach sideways or, mm. or by or by leaving their silences in the in the in the kind of appropriate yeah. gaps um and that's i think yeah just having recently interviewed 
Marcelo Martinesi, the Paraguayan director I mentioned to you just before we started recording, there's a similar thing there in his work as well, where there, there are these kind of silences and there are these yeah. things which are in the background but perhaps you know don't go unsaid. Um, yeah. I think that's that blending of, of that historical shadow of dictatorship, yeah. which kind of is present in the book, as, mm. and that melding also with the kind of you know history of personal trauma, I think, is very yeah. kind of powerful, very fertile ground to be kind yeah. of to be working on to use, to use that word. Um, uh, I mean, just a side question here: are, mm. are you, Is it also coming out in Brazil? Are you? Are you? Are you is there a translation uh, or semi-translation in the works? I would. There isn't one in the works. I would really, really like it to come out in Brazil. Um, the UK publisher owns those rights. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think I would just love it to come out in Brazil. I think it's really important. Uh, it has a, like a political stance, obviously that text. Um, even though it was written before uh, Dilma was impeached. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important for that reason. Um, but we'll see what happens. I know that, like, you know, like the two main, uh, like, bookshops in Brazil were, like, going into administration. I mean, that was around Christmas. But so I, I would really like it to if, if you're, you know, an yeah, editor if in anyone's, If anyone's listening, yeah. uh, please, please get in yeah. touch. And it would um, be such, um, also... Um, just a really cool tran- translation project. Yeah. Um, like I would love to work with. I, I promise I wouldn't be too overbearing. <laughs> because it couldn't just be like translated. It would have to be its own beast, right? When you see the coverage, for example, of, of Bolsonaro or mm. Dilma or impeachment, you know, I mean, do, do, someone who's who's got very strong connections to Brazil. Does that does that feel like? You know, yeah. Do you recognise it, and do you do you, or do you are things you wish weren't done or well, were done? I mean. When the book was so, the book finishes in, at the end of two thousand and fifteen, and they, the characters dis, do discuss like the presentation of Brazil in the media yeah. um, at certain points, um, and some of the things they discuss refer to. Some of them are frustrations I've had. Some of them are sort of frustrations I've seen other people that maybe I think are a bit silly. So some of the things that come up are like uh, the main character works, you know, I don't know, like a big TV channel. Um, sure. And she's like whatever, very junior. She's just come out of uni, and she's having to work on all these silly documentaries about like whatever, like a sort of very decontextualized violence, yeah. or um, very decontextualized. At the beginning, she works on a program about plastic surgery. Yeah, it, it's bodies, it's volleyball, it's, it's yeah. bikinis, it's violence. Yeah. So I think like there is a criticism. I mean, it's not that those aren't act- they actually are quite important topics that you can cover in a really profound way that talks about like. Uh, white supremacy or like police violence but that's obviously not the way that these TV programs are done so there is a criticism of that and then towards the end of the book there's a conversation between her and her aunt who sort of seems to have taken a sort of like slightly fash turn um, <laughs> like and um, like, like a lot of like upper class white Brazilians around then um, and her aunt is saying why isn't there more coverage of the corruption in Brazil why so her aunt is also uh, what I wanted to show was like this need to desire to be seen by Europe, by that is part of the Europhilia and the white supremacy of certain Brazilians, which sure. I think is is quite interesting, and I think there's also an opportunity to leverage that. Like, it's quite interesting, and what I see now is like in um, left wing Brazilian outlets, they'll say like Bolsonaro is rejected in the U.S. Bolsonaro yeah, is, yeah. Reje-, you know, and they're really trying to like leverage the the Europhilia, like sure. the. U.S. North American, yeah, like that, that sort of vira, vira lachismo, right? The idea that, yeah, 
Was it? I mean, like, I so I see a huge irony there, which I think is quite funny, and I think that is a lot of present a lot in the book. But just like going back to the media coverage, like obviously the media coverage of um, the the impeachment of Dilma and the coup, like, um, was <laughs> yeah, was like was really disappointing. Um, I think like people, and not just the media coverage, like also politicians, like people just didn't come out and say like this is political. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, like I, I wrote an op-ed at the time, not because I want to be wanted to. I wrote it just because it was actually a Facebook status, and then someone approached me and was like, "Do you want to print this?" Mm. Um, because it just wasn't being said, and I think that's partly because people just didn't understand Brazil at all, and I think. Maybe also people just felt like, oh, corrupt Latin American sounds about right. Um, yeah. But now I actually think that's slightly potentially changed. I don't know if I'm being over optimistic, but it's a sort of it's more clear cut now. It's easier to for a, a journalist here who doesn't really understand Brazilian politics to say, okay, Bolsonaro is a bad guy. I think I get that. Mm-hmm. And with these new revelations that have come out now, I think it's easier for people to come out and be like, oh, that makes sense because Bolsonaro is a bad guy. Whereas at the time they they weren't able to make that. They weren't sort of. They can sort of yeah. retrospectively say maybe what they just weren't prepared or equipped to say yeah. at the time. I, I, I think I think you touched on a really interesting point there. Yeah, I mean, also, I, I'd love with your permission to link to that off yeah, yeah. in the notes of the thing, and, and you know, you're referring to the uh, revelations by the Intercept Brazil last yeah, yeah. week about suggesting that Sergio, that indeed the evidence perhaps that yeah. Sergio Moro, Sergio Moro and Lava Jato were not as impartial as yeah. they as they claimed kind of thing. And I think that's interesting. You know, yeah, the, perhaps. The, the lines of it have become clearer. Mm. Um, I mean, arguably, you know, there have been many journalists, both Brazilian and international, saying this stuff, pointing the evidence of this stuff yeah. for several years now, you know. And, but I think you're right. I think it's, it's, it's become yeah. it's a bit more. Clearer, and and yeah. another interesting one is like, I think that there are some people in the UK and in the US, like in the whatever, just in the global north generally, who like don't particularly care about like black and brown Brazilians, LGBTQ Brazilians, whatever, but they don't want the rainforest to get destroyed because yeah. it's their planet like in the, so it's in like they might have this very selfish self-centered perspective that nevertheless is still anti-bolsonaro and still worried about him so yeah, yeah. yeah there's kind of idea that oh well the, the kind of let's say a rise in police violence mm. shame but i'm really worried about the amazon <laughs> yeah I think, I, I think that's an, inter- that's an interesting point there and i think w- one of the things i think you, you capture quite interesting really well in the, in, in the book is that they, they, you have this sort of um, perhaps a benevolent ignorance about, about Latin America that's always like oh I've, I've read Gabriel Garcia Marquez mm-hmm. and oh you know oh that's that's really cool and then you have a slightly more kind of um, let's say like poorly informed mm. or stereotyped view and I think I think what I like about or one of the things I like one of the many things I like about the book is how actually what you're driving at is, is you know, the reality is, is, is between those two and mm. it's about everyday things it's about the climate it's about family it's about food and you know, there, there are things there which don't, perhaps don't get portrayed as often, often as they should do, you know, that there's everyday realities between the, the stereotypes, which, you know. Yeah, d- totally, and I think, like, there's been a lot of, I don't know, even in the kind of past 10 years, a lot with this sort of surge in discourse around identity, and there's been a lot of focus on the interpersonal, which I think has been such a relief for a lot of people, because suddenly they can talk about these things that felt unsaid or were really hurtful. And it is really important to talk about those things, and I think the book has got those things, but it also links them to their broader context and their history, and I think that that's necessary. Like, it's it's not quite enough to 
just understand, like, to take pride in who you are and be able to say it. It's also important to be like, well, where did this identity come from? Like, where did this, who does this construct benefit? Yeah. Um, like, who is it hurting in, like, a structural way? And talk to, yeah, so I was trying to move between the sort of, like, interpersonal, the small interpersonal things and then the bigger structural things, as well as, like, big interpersonal violence, right? Like, uh, like sexual violence, which is which just come up in the in the text as well. Yeah, and actually, yeah, I mean, towards the end of the book, you're you're sort of you're talking a bit more about or, or, or uh, hinting at this this sense of, of yeah racial inequalities and, and the mm. idea that, that you know um, the family of the, of, the, of the protagonist perhaps come from that, that sort of you know uh, whiter kind of middle yeah. class and that and that sort of you know there are disparities there. And Definitely, and I think that's that's really instructive and interesting when, when, when we think about the roots of, of um, Bolsonarismo, if we can kind yeah, of give yeah, it, give yeah, it yeah. that term. I mean, what's, what are your kind of feelings about what's going on in Brazil uh, at the moment? I don't want to like oversimplify it, but like it is a, is a country that was founded and created in settler colonialist violence and um, slavery ended not so long ago, like you know, what, four or five generations ago, eighteen eighty-eight. So sure. the structure of the society is still very like escabocolata, like it's very based in slavery. Um, for me, I think that's very significant and kind of like if you think about a character like Vovó Cecilia, it's so important for her that she's perceived as white, that she's not poor anymore, that she never gets mistaken for a domestic. Um, worker in the supermarket yeah, yeah. and that fear of um, the other or being perceived as black like is actually a different kind of white supremacy to what we have in Europe it's not a fear of the outside as such like it's a kind of it, the mechanics of it are slightly are slightly different yeah. and um, people like that have been incredibly threatened by the you know relatively modest reforms of the of the PT so like um, quotas for universities uh, so if you're black or indigenous or were receiving Bolsa Familia like a welfare package or you went to a state school you would um, be on a quota um, workers rights for domestic workers things like that I, you know you go to these households in Brazil and people are so angry about them you know they they're so outraged that they pay for private school for their kid the whole life and then the kid doesn't get into you know the federal university so and there's also just this program mice medicals that people would get very angry about as well because they were brazilian doctors who were choosing not to go work in rural areas because they didn't they wanted to stay in the nice cities yeah. um particularly rural areas in the northeast or in indigenous areas and um so the Br brazil cut a struck a, they they cut a deal with the cuban government and they brought in cuban doctors and there was this xenophobia like the cuban doctors are not good doctors or suddenly they'd be really concerned with cuban doctors being paid enough but of yeah. course they didn't they know, they know. Yeah. <laughs> so um yeah it, it's remarkable to me how fairly modest redistributions of of wealth and things like that really made touch something very sort of emotional in in this powerful class in brazil so you see kind of bolsonaro as a kind of uh, a backlash again against that sort of era of, of let's say relative kind of racial socioeconomic progress I think so and I mean I think it, it really to understand why you have to see Brazil in its context of a country that was founded 
in this incredible violence. Um, and I suppose that, like Laverne Cox talks about the US in this way, but thinking about also about violence against like gender non-conforming people and LGBTQ people as also coming from a country that was born out of this incredible violence, uh, which I mean, it's racialized violence as well, which I think is really applies to uh, Brazil as well, yeah. in its own way. That's, that's, that's interesting. And, and, and kind of taking, shifting the view back, mm. back to London, I know you're, you're a, a trustee of Latin American Women's Aid, yeah. um, which I think is, the, is one of two uh, shelters run for women, uh, or by, by Latin American women for mm. Latin American women in, in all of Europe. Mm. Um, can, you t- can you tell me a bit more about, about, about what they do and, and, and your involvement with them? Um, yeah, so Latin American Women's Aid or LAWA run, they run the only two um, refuges, uh, like you said, and um, I'm a trustee, so I'm not doing frontline work, it's like voluntary and I mostly am like there for paperwork and stuff like that. Um, and the work that LAWA does is, um, I guess in, in the simple terms, it's, you know, if uh, Latin American or uh, Portuguese or Spanish-speaking um, BME women, so like a woman from Angola, for example, um, need to leave an abusive situation, relationship, uh, domestic situation, then our refuge space exists, but also we have um, advice centre. And a lot of what we do is also existing in a space that is like dealing with austerity and a hostile environment. So... Um, it's very hard to like access housing um, in under the hostile environment, um, and Latin Americans in the UK is a really big growing group. So I think there was a Queen Mary study that showed it's grown fivefold in the last ten years or so. So it's a really huge increase, um, and that same study also showed um, that Latin Americans are more likely to be earning below the minimum wage, living in precarious housing, so all of these things make it much harder for someone to leave an abusive situation, like if you haven't got if it's hard for you to get housing if you haven't got good housing um, like if you can't access housing benefit if you, if your partner is using your immigration status against you there's like all these different things that sort of like um, compound to make it particularly hard, and then also you know if you don't speak English or if you go to a generic women's service and um, you face racism or stereotypes or so there are all these different things that make a, like a culturally specific service necessary basically and what's yeah it's run for and by Latin American women so it's sort of safer in that sense and what we do also is it's kind of based in like intersectional feminism and communitarian feminism so it's inclusive of Trans women, um, LBT women as well, sure. and yeah, that's fantastic. And, and I think, like you know, as you said that 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 Latin community in London has grown so massively, yeah. but in some respects still feels made less visible. Let's say mm. to, to people who aren't part of the community. And, and while it has a lot of strengths, and there are kind of things like centres around Oakland Castle, mm. Seven Sisters, those are also kind of un, under threat as well. So it kind of feels like that community is kind of fighting back on different fronts, you know? Yeah, definitely. And most of the campaigns that you see are centred around visibility um, or, like, gentrification. I mean, these things are related. So, like, in Seven Sisters, there's the campaign to save the market. In Elephant and Castle, there's also a campaign to save 
um, uh, the market there sure. and um, there's various campaigns to get um, I think Latino put on um, forms with different boroughs so I, I think in Islington and in Southwark they do um, but what I think is, is interesting is in like sort of newer campaigns, so there's a, a campaign run by like younger people with the Advocacy Academy and they're campaigning for it to be on the UCAS forms and they're actually not asking for, my understanding is they're not asking for one box, they're asking for, you know how it's like, you can be black, British, black, African, black, Caribbean or whatever, they're asking for or like white Irish, white Isle, you know. Um, I think they're asking for Latin American or Latino. I don't know if they could get Latinx, but um, and then sort of white or Afro Latino. Exactly, yeah. and I think that's I think that's really important because in terms of you don't want to flatten that difference because it's not the same experience in terms of data collection, which is ultimately like what it's about. I think it's really I'm sure that people are having very different experiences here in the UK depending on um, their race, and it's also like important to know. I mean, my guess would be, for example, that there are the white Latin Americans overrepresented here in the UK because they're the ones that can afford to migrate and probably have learned English more. So, so I think it's good to not flatten the fact that, not to reinforce the we're all misty so myth of Latin America. I think it's important to acknowledge that actually there's like, you know, it's a, how could this continent based on like, we're talking 300, 400 million people Absolutely, across, yeah. you know, 20, 25 different countries. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's and um, it's like, I'm sh you know, race as we know it today was partially, partially exists so that to justify the foundation of Latin America. So how could yeah. we talk about Latin Americans as if um, they're all one race? So, yes. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, 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 just, and just finally, you know, uh, and, and, and jumping off that, I know it's probably uh, really early days, but I understand you, you were in Recife last year doing yeah. some more kind of field work doing some more kind of research can, yeah. you, can you kind of share any kind of fragments about what, what the next project is or is that kind of tightly under, no, under wraps yeah, for now? No, yeah, totally um, yes, so thank you Society of Authors for giving me the money to go to Hisipi in December, that was really great um, yeah, I'm working book to, I think it's like 60% done, touch wood, who knows um, but there are sort of two main characters and one's obviously from South London but the other um, is from uh, Olinda, which is like just out just next to Hisipi and um, yeah I went to stay there for three weeks um, I've got I've been there many times before because some um, we have some very close like family friends um, who live there and yeah I was I went to the university a little bit to do some it was the research in the sort of like what does my character do every day oh she gets the bus so I guess I'll just get the bus like a lot of it was was that kind of thing but there was also um, and I do this in the library as well, but learning about, again, I think, I don't know, I feel it's like incumbent on me to talk more about the dictatorship and that kind of thing. So that's also what, part of what I'm looking at. And um, yeah, when I went to the university there, they were talking, they were saying that um, someone had pinned like a kill list of professors up on the door and said so-and-so is like a, is like a, you know, it's a slur, so-and-so is a communist, so-and-so is gay, so-and-so is and they had just pinned that on. So I wasn't even like looking for that, but that was part of what the context that I found when I went. Yeah. 
That sounds really fascinating. Um, I can't I can't wait to read it. Um, yeah. uh, we better wrap up wrapping it up there. Yeah. Good, good note to end on. Yeah. Um, but Yara, thanks so much for speaking no, to us. Thank you so much for having me. Great questions. And that's it for another episode of Miradas. We heard from the Puerto Rican journalist Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez, who talked about the current crisis in the US territory and its vexed relationship with the US mainland. It was a great conversation. I learned a lot, and you can see some links to her work in the show description. Then John caught up in the deep dive section with Nina Lacani. Uh, she's a freelance correspondent covering Mexico and Central America. I really enjoyed their chat, and uh, I can't wait to read Nina's book about uh, Berta Cáceres. Uh, it's going to be explosive, I'm sure. Um, and then finally in the culture section, I sat down with writer Yara Rodriguez-Fowler to discuss Stubborn Archivist, her debut novel, which is sort of about a life caught between Brazil and Britain, uh, memory and, and forgetting. Um, it's out now in the US, uh, and it's really hypnotic uh, and interesting book, so um, do check it out. We also talked about the situation in Brazil right now under Jair Bolsonaro, uh, and and uh, Yara's advocacy on behalf of the Latin community in London. Uh, please do rate and subscribe to Maradas on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud. Share us with your networks, friends and loved ones. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MaradasPod. Check out our website and join our mailing list at MaradasPodcast.com and reach us on info at MaradasPodcast.com. Our music is by La Motivante. Our logo is by Diego Cumplido. And you can look him up uh, and them up on our website as well. Uh, until next time, take care.